And uh, one thing that may be of use is the, the insert here, or you can see it online too, um, with the questions that, I'm sorry, the, the message notes that will guide you through the flow of our sermon. You can either fill in as you, as you want or just use that as kind of a visual aid to, to see where we're headed. One of the things I'm really stressing is um, this is week two, which means last week was week one. And Pastor Ben did an awesome job of really setting up this series. And he had so many interesting things to, to throw at you. And there's just so many, I was writing down things left and right, not just because he said it's good for my marriage or it shows my wife I'm paying attention, um, but there was just so, many, so much good stuff. So I, I really encourage you, as if, if you missed last week, that's kind of a pivotal week in, in this whole series. So I encourage you to go online to our website, BethlehemLakeville.org, and you can listen to that message as well as any other message that you want to, and you can sort of um, see what he had to say about marriage. There's, there's just too much stuff for me to summarize in an effective way. Uh, but there was one thing from his sermon right at the very beginning that really struck me, and it's something that, that I... I Remembered right away, probably because he said my name. But basically, he said this. He's, he's coming clean with you. He's like, you know what? We're doing a, marriage, a series on marriage. And he's like, you know what? I, this is Ben talking. I'm not the perfect husband. And then he said in the same breath, maybe Pastor Matt is. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, Ben, you do not know who I am if you think I'm the perfect husband. But then I went home and something happened that made me rethink. Maybe I am the perfect husband. What happened was this. If you were here last week, you, this is familiar. We, we were handing these out to all the married couples. These are little dating booklets just to give you ideas on a date, some fresh ideas on date night or whatever. And so there's seven steps in here. It's kind of in the, in the realm of, you know, playing a Wii or something. And so you pick your Wii character, and it goes to step two, you know, set, setting up, choose a controller, what to talk about as you go th- th- with your, on your dinner drive, and then what to talk about when it's time to eat, and then say, step six is save, saving, saving the data, you know, make a memory. And then step seven says free play. It says throw both controllers away. You can end the game however you like. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll let you, you know, figure out what that means. So here's what happens. So I go home and my wife is looking at this thing and she's paging through it, you know, snickering here and there, you know, and I, she knows I'm not going to do half the stuff in this book, but she, she's giggling here and there and, and she reads through it and she finishes step seven and she puts it down and she says, honey, this is a great book. You know, it's got a lot of ideas in it, but can't we just skip to step seven? And I'm like, wow, I have the perfect marriage. You know, you don't have to, <laughs> with the date night, just skip the free play, do whatever you want, put the controls away. And it's like, wow, this is just awesome. I can, you know, maybe, maybe you felt that way at times too, where you're just at the top of a relationship. You could, you know, ask anything, you could do anything, and you know that the person is there for you. But we've also been in places where it's hard to start step one. It's a struggle to start a conversation. And, and it's, it's not a fun place to be in either, whether that's a marriage relationship or any relationship, someone you care about. It's hard just to work up the energy to talk. Now, what we're doing in this series is we're t- all of us enter marriage or relationships with this ideal, right? Our ideal picture of, of all of our expectations of what this person can do. And as you enter marriage, you begin to realize my expectations weren't actually, actually aligned with reality. There's a big gap between what's ideal and what's real. And, and Ben did a great job last week. You know, sometimes we fill that gap with excuses or we fill it with accusations. You know, why can't you be more like my mom or my dad? We don't use that one. But why can't you be more like my expectations? And there's this gap in there. Uh, what we want to do today is we want to identify 
what you could say is just the basics. What is a marriage? What is really ideal for a marriage? And, and my hope is that we can redefine, recalculate what the ideal marriage really looks like. And then take a couple steps in our real life to, to get there. And this disclaimer is, yeah, this is going to hit married couples and it's completely applicable to you. And the little kids are going to be like, oh, talking about marriage stuff doesn't apply. You know, younger, or, yeah, younger adults, maybe it applies to you as you look towards marriage. Or there's all, even the widows or the people who are older, and I might never be married. So it's, it's a wide audience, and, and here's kind of the application for everyone. Marriage is the top human relationship that we have. And so as we apply things to that relationship up there, you're going to find that a lot of what we talk about applies to any relationship that you have especially the close ones. So today I want to start off with a question that's designed to make you look at the relationship between a husband and a wife, and the way you answer this question will determine the, the, the health of the relationship. Is this a marriage that's sustainable? Is this a marriage that's going to last? It can be answered by answering this one question. It's your fill-in number one. Is this relationship a contract or is it a covenant? Is the foundation for this relationship best described as a contract or as a covenant? And we're going to spend today looking at the difference between those two things. You, you might already know what a contract is. A contract is where two people decide that they can both do something that will benefit both of them. Um, for example, you want to build a deck on your house. You contract someone to build the deck. Once they build the deck, what do you give them? If it's a friend, you give them some beer. If it's a real contractor, you give them some money, right? Uh, there's, there's this contract. Sometimes it's written, sometimes it's verbal. You do this for me, I do this for you. That's a contractual relationship. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and just define the, the, what's really at the heart of a, of a contract relationship is key point number two. We're going really fast today. In a contract relationship, individual needs trump the relationship. Individual needs are more important than the actual relationship itself. In other words, I have certain needs, and if you're not going to meet them in this contract, then our relationship is over, and I'll go to someone else who can fulfill my needs the way I need them to be fulfilled. That's what a contract relationship looks like. You need contract relationships in life for various things. But here's the deal. Marriage cannot be a contract. This is something that's really invaded our, our, our culture and our society, that marriage is a contract. And, and if that's the way you view it and if that's the way you enter it, it's going to have negative impacts all the way throughout it. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, you don't have to be all one or the other either. either. You, can, you, know, so you can sort of have just little bits of a contract mentality in your mind when it comes to your relationship. Here are some of the red flags to know if you're thinking along contract lines. Okay, so, so maybe I'm thinking of marriage more as a contract. Here are some red flags. First one is this. It's real common. Situation is, you know, there's, there's some strife in a marriage, and so she's talking to her friends and telling her how horrible things are, and they say to her, oh, honey, you deserve to be happy. Oh, honey, you deserve better than this. Oh, honey, you, you deserve to be happy. That, that's a contract way of thinking. And if you enter marriage saying, I deserve to be happy, I'm going to get happy, 
then what happens when you're not happy? Is that a grounds for you to say, well, the contract is broken. I guess I'll get happy from someone else. That, that's a contract way of thinking. Uh, there, there's another common way of thinking about you know, contracts in relationships, and maybe it goes like this. I've heard this one from, from older adults. They're saying, you know what? You know, our marriage is kind of ruined, but we're going to stay together for the kids. Yeah, I hear that all the time. We're going to stay together for the kids. Or we're going to stay together for the business or for, so that we don't have to explain it to everyone. It's just too much hassle to, you know, to get divorced. So we're just going to stay together for fill in the blank. That's a contract. That's, that's a mutually beneficial agreement that if you both stick to something, then you're both going to get something out of it. That's, that's a contract. Uh, here's another red flag. This is something that you don't hear maybe so often, but you know, a young couple um, living together, not married, not going to be married ever, and they say, we don't need a piece of paper to tell us that we love each other. We don't need a piece of paper to tell us that we love each other. And, and you might say, well, that's definitely not a contract. Actually, it is. They're saying, you know what? I've got too many strings attached to this. I don't want to change things up. I don't want to give away what I'm getting. By the way, that, that, that phrase, no strings attached, it actually comes from the 1800s in the fabric industry in, in Europe. Whenever they were trading expensive silks or expensive cloths, they would always inspect them. And if there were any defects in, this, in that piece of fabric, do you know what they would do? They would attach a string. And a string attached to a piece of cloth means you can buy this if you want, but beware, there is something wrong with it. There are some strings attached. And if there's a lot of defects, a lot of strings. Uh, that, that's somehow came into our modern way of talking. You know, if, if, a, if a deal is too good to be true, someone might say, hey, it's, it's what I have. No strings attached. I promise you, there's, there's nothing behind the scenes that you're missing. Uh, and as, as we look at, at the marriage relationship, there's this one thing to remember. With any contract, there are going to be strings attached. With any contract, it's always focused on what we need. And so while you have many relationships in your life that will be focused around a contract, what you get from someone else, Marriage cannot be one of them. You see this idea of contracts all over, all over our, our culture. You know, what's the reason for a divorce? Uh, in irreconcilable differences. They didn't get what they wanted. And now before we throw too much of a pity party that the state of, of marriage is just under attack in modern America, you can make a case that marriage was actually worse off 2,000 years ago. Marriage was actually worse off 2,000 years ago. I'm going to put up a, a, a passage here from Deuteronomy 24, but this is going to tell you how people were thinking in the days of Moses well before 2,000 years ago and also in the day of Jesus. And I'll explain that here in a bit. Here's their view of marriage. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And it, it goes on. There's actually five verses where it talks about the situation like this. This was Moses talking to the Israelites. He said, look, if, if there's a husband and he finds something wrong with his wife, she's displeasing to him because he found something indecent. You know, and these, the words is, are very vague here in general. Um, he says, if this is what happens, then he goes on, this is what I, I, I want you to do. 
Now, the religious, very religious people throughout the years have looked at this passage in two different ways. And one of the prominent ways that, that they looked at it in Jesus' day was to say this. Look, here's proof or here's permission that, guys, you can divorce your wife for whatever reason you want to. Any reason. Hey, were you looking at that guy over there and were you talking to that guy with the big muscles? I divorce you. Hey, were you talking to your wife in a way that could be construed as, you know, talking about me in a bad way? Were you, were you talking to that other lady in, in a bad way? I divorce you. Did you burn my supper? I divorce you. Basically, any reason that you could come up with to divorce your wife, you know, some people look at this and they said, here's your permission. Moses said, you can do it. And in Jesus' day, they, there were some people out to get him, to catch him in, in, a, in a situation that couldn't be resolved. And they said, this is perfect. This is what we're going to use to finally get this teacher to tell something that isn't accurate. Because this teacher, Jesus, he loved God's word. He didn't want to break it. But he also loved people. And he showed a lot of honor for, toward, towards women especially, which was something that was unique. And so they were going to bring this up to him. It's in Matthew chapter 19. Some Pharisees come up to him. Jesus is, is teaching people. He's healing people. And they don't care about the teaching and the healing. They just come back to this point. And so they ask him, Matthew 19 verse 3, they, they come to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Is there any possibility that a man could go and just divorce his wife for any reason? Is there any situation where that might happen? And look at the way they're phrasing this. It's, it's very specific. What are they expecting the one-word answer to be? No. <laughs> Can a man just divorce his wife for any and every reason? Well, no. That's, that's the easy answer. Uh, Jesus, understanding that this wasn't just about giving an easy answer, uh, he goes back to something a little, a little bit more, more basis for it. Uh, to respond to this, uh, we go on in verse 4 here. Jesus asks them, you know, this is a, a verbal slap to the face. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? No, let's, let's just pause right there. Th this goes back to before Moses. This is at the beginning. God made mankind male and female. God made, and if you look at Genesis, which is in Genesis chapter 2, God made them in his image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. And the image of God means, yeah, we were designed and made to be perfect and holy without sin. But it also means male and female, we were created to demonstrate the oneness, the unity that God has with himself. You know, Father, Son, and Spirit, together, unity in one. He created mankind, man and woman, to be, as he's about to say, to be one. This is how we were designed. And he said, because of this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. He will leave the relationships that are deepest and strongest, and he'll be united to his wife. Um, some old people here, there's the King James Version. How does, that how does they translate this? He'll leave his father and mother and, all right, there's no old people here, cleave. He will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Um, cleave uh, kind of gives us a hint that this is more than just being, okay, that they're uniting for a common cause. It's they're being glued together. 
in such a tight way that if you try to take them apart, you will ruin both of them. They're united. They're brought together. And the two will become one flesh. Now Jesus says, okay, I know this is a little bit weird. Two becoming one flesh. Let me restate it in other words. Verse 6. So they are no longer two but one. Quick question. How many people does it take for a contract? It takes two. At least two parties in every contract. How many are in marriage? One. If you're looking at marriage and you're saying, this is where I make a contract, this is where I make a deal to get what I need, you're looking in the wrong place. The way God views marriage is the way we should view marriage, not as two people coming together for common, mutual, beneficial things, but two becoming one. And I know right now we're really focusing on this the way God created us, you know, to be together, to be married, you know, husband and wife. And, and I recognize not everybody's going to fit that. You know, there are some, some people who, I don't know if I'll ever be married, or I don't know if I'll ever be married again. And for those of you that that might apply to, you know, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's, that's a great chapter that talks about the purpose God has for single people too and why that can be a blessing. Uh, but, but here for this series, we're looking at this, two becoming one, and what God means by that. Jesus follows up this with one other thing. He says, therefore, here's the important part, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What God has joined together? I could take a, a couple up here, you know, a married, a married couple, and, and I could ask them, how many days a week do you believe that to be true, that God joined you together? You get a certain person on the right day or the wrong day, if, depending on how you look at it, and you say, do you believe that God joined you together with, with your husband or with your wife? And they'd say, I, I don't know. You know, if God joined us together, if, if God really joined us together, wouldn't he give me a wife who respects me more? If God really joined us together, and here's where the humility steps in, if God really joined us together, wouldn't he give her a husband that loves her more. How can you say God joined us together when, when there are these differences that we have and this fighting and this bickering? I'll, I'll answer that. Why would God join together two people who are moderately or severely incompatible? Or why join together two people and one of the, one of the, one of the people has, has this weakness that really... Their, their, their partner needs it to be their strength. Why does God bring together two people? Here's why. I'll answer it with a question. How can you demonstrate unconditional love to a person who meets all of your conditions? How can you demonstrate grace to someone who doesn't need it? How can you demonstrate patience with someone who never pushes you or perseverance to someone who never pushes your buttons? There's, there's this wisdom that, you know, what God joins together, it's for a purpose. It's, it's not to make things ideal in our definition. Uh, the purpose is to give us an opportunity to do something different. We'll get into more, more of that later. Uh, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus is making it perfectly clear here. You know, can, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? 
No way. Because at the beginning, God made them male and female. What God has joined together, let man not separate. So the Pharisees are, well, what about Deuteronomy 24? What about that guy Moses who said, well, if you divorce your wife, here's what you do. Well, so they, they go on and they, they, they test him a little bit more. Verse 7, they say to him, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why would Moses do that? They used a pretty strong word there with the word command. Oh, we, we, we're helpless. We have to do what Moses said. I have to divorce my wife. It's just you know, it's what he says. But when you read Deuteronomy 24, it's not exactly God saying, oh, I command you to divorce. God does not want that. Basically, the way it runs is this. If this is what you are going to choose to do, then at least, you know, it goes on for several verses. If this is what you're going to choose to do, at least avoid doing this in the end. If this is the path you want to go down, fine, but... I have to curb you at some point. You can't do this. And you could read Deuteronomy 24 and see how it all plays out. But Moses is not commanding them. Jesus actually phrases it much better here in verse 8. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. And there was a good reason for it. Your hearts were hard. But it was not this way in the beginning. It wasn't always this way. It wasn't designed to be this way. Your hearts were hard. And I want to talk for a little bit. What does it look like to have a hard heart? Here's, here's where I start to preach at myself. What does it look like to have a hard heart? Here's what it looks like. It looks like a guy sitting in a chair much like you're sitting in. And this guy is praising God and thanking God day after day, saying, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. I need your grace every day. Your grace is awesome. I need it. Thank you for your grace. And as soon as he's done worshiping, he goes home. And he demands that his wife lives in such a way that she doesn't need his grace. That's a hard heart. A hard heart looks like this. It's, it's a woman sitting in a chair, much like you're sitting in, and, and she's thinking to herself, God, thank you for your unconditional love. And tears well up. Thank you, God, for your unconditional love, for, for being so forgiving, for loving me day after day. I'm just a wreck. But thank you for your unconditional love. And then she goes home and she gets angry at her husband for not meeting her conditions. That's a hard heart. And there are a lot of hard hearts in this room. You look at marriage in the world today, on top of you know, this contract mentality, there's, there's a lot of hard hearts. Ways of thinking that only focus on ourselves, And it's no surprise that you see married couples leaving. No surprise that you see all this bad stuff going on and, and, the, and the, the percentages of, of divorce are just out the window. It's no surprise that people leave each other. Now, there's this one surprising thing in this whole story. And that is that he stayed. Uh, you look at the story of Jesus. He stayed for 30-some years. He stayed with you even when he had a chance to chase something that was much funner, much more attractable. Uh, a bunch of people wanted him to be their king and he could have all the glory. He could have gone that way. But instead, he stayed with you. Why? Uh, he had a choice. You know, he could uh, he could have uh, left Jerusalem alone or he could travel there even though he knew that it would lead to a, a, 
a, a torment and a punishment so harsh that just the beating alone would, would, would lead to his death eventually. Oh, the surprising thing is he stayed that course to be with you. Why? Why, why did he do that? Uh, the surprising thing is when you see him on the cross, all these people are shouting at him. So you, you fool, if, if, you think, if, if you think you're the son of God, if you've got all this power, just show us. Just come down from there. But he stayed. Why? It goes back to the first question that we asked today. Is this relationship built on a contract or on something else? Is this a contract or is it a covenant? And I'll tell you right away, when it comes to you and God, there is no contract. There's nothing you put on the table that he wants. So what comes, when it comes to the relationship between you and God, the reason Jesus stayed is because of a covenant, which is a lot stronger than a contract. Uh, let's go ahead and get the, the next uh, key point up here. Uh, key point number three kind of gets to the point of the difference between contract and covenant. A covenant, in a covenant, relationship trumps individual needs. It doesn't matter that I'm not getting what I want. We have a relationship, and that's what matters. And you don't see this too often in our world. Maybe the best way to view it is a mother and infant. You know, why take care of this child, or parents and infant? Why take care of this child? It doesn't give you anything. It doesn't pay you back pays you back with dirty things. Why take care of it? Uh, there, there's, no, there's no contract. Uh, it's got to be covenant. It's, it's a covenant relationship where you are bound not because of what you get, but because of who you are. Um, in, in this kind of co- covenant relationship, it's exactly the kind that God established with you, not because of what you give him, but because of who he is. Uh, he was not driven by meeting his needs. Jesus did not come to be served or to receive. He simply came to be with you forever. That's a covenant. And, and I want to explain a little bit, what does it look like when a marriage isn't based on contract, but, but marriage is based on covenant? And what, what exactly does that look like? Um, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. What does a marriage in a contract look like, or a covenant look like? And it looks like this. First of all, speaking to you as individuals, it looks like a sinful, broken person who has been filled up with the power and life of Christ's resurrection. You start there as, in, I don't care if you're married or if you're single, if you're a kid or an adult, you are a sinful, broken person who has been filled up with the power and life of Christ's resurrection. And the reason you have that is because of his covenant to you. And it's done. Okay, now I'm talking to you married couples. You know, what does a covenant relationship look like? It looks like this. It looks like two sinful, broken people filled up with the power and life of Christ's resurrection. And God takes those two and he makes them into one. It's cool, when you look at you know, the marriage vows we take, what we do is we have the husband and wife up here, they're facing front, and they give their promises. Yes, I promise to be faithful to him or to her. You, know, you go through those promises, and then they face each other and make their vows to one another. You know, what's, what's going on? There's a covenant happening here, an agreement that we're not in it to get something for ourselves, but we are approaching God to keep us tied in this relationship. 
for better or worse, till death do us part, not because of a contract, but because of who we are. Two broken, sinful individuals filled up with the power of Christ's resurrection. And, and to, to, to further, you know, look at what this means in, in relationships. I'll finish here with the last two uh, key fill-ins. And these last two things are kind of applications to take home with you as you look at re-identifying what the ideal marriage really looks like and then looking at how the real you can get closer to that. Uh, first of all, what does the ideal marriage really look like? It looks like this. It doesn't look like an absence of conflict. It looks like you have an opportunity to love. The new ideal is not freedom from conflict. The new ideal is opportunity to love. Like we said before, how would you be able to, to, uh, to uh, uh, give unconditional love to a person who meets all of your conditions? It's impossible. Uh, and next week, we're really going to dive into that thought. You know, um, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, the church was not perfect, but Christ loved her anyway. And so as we look at the new ideal for marriage, don't think of a marriage, the perfect marriage being one that's free from conflict, where we always get along and we take picnics everywhere, you know. It, that's not the ideal. The ideal is this, a place where you can demonstrate God's love, whatever that might be. Reset your ideal on that. And then once you do that, let's take a closer, a closer look at getting there with, with, the, with the real. And this is your last fill-in today, number five. It's time for you to come to terms with your terms. Here's what we mean. All of us have this continuing tendency to bring our contracts with us. I wish that she would just start doing this for a change. I wish that he would just stop doing that for a change. You know, we all have these terms, these conditions that we want the other person to meet in order to bring us what we want. And and we bring that, whether it's subtle or whether it's a major part of our marriage, it's always there. Here's the challenge. Come to terms with your terms. What are you expecting them to do? Is it something you're verbalizing to them or is it something you just think they should know? What are your terms? And then answer this key question. This is for everybody. Who in my life is suffering right now because of my terms? Who am I holding under contract and whom am I punishing because they're not giving me what I want? It's time to come to terms with that. And you lay that at the cross. Leave it there. Because it's there that sinful, broken people are filled up with the power of Christ's resurrection. Uh, One last thought here, right before we pray. And this is, again, for everybody, just to think about. God did not call you to go out and be in contract with all of your neighbors. He doesn't use those terms ever. Go and be in contract with your neighbors, doing good to them as they do good to you. That's not what he asks. He calls you to go and love your neighbor. That includes friends. That includes spouse. Go and love your neighbor. And love is not a contract. Love is a covenant with no strings attached. And we're going to pick it up there next week as we look at the unique way that that husband and wife are set up to demonstrate this kind of covenant love to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today I pray for all the individuals who are listening to this message uh, who are in marriage. 
And uh, while sometimes we find ourselves quick to, to jump to, to part seven, you know, skip through all the, the other things and just enjoy life together, and sometimes it's a struggle to start with step one and, and just talk about the issues we need to talk about. Now, everyone listening to this is in a different place right now, so I ask your blessing on each one of them individually, that you would help them to, to focus on the covenant you established with them, that in Christ, they're forgiven, they're holy, they're your children. And once you fill them up with that thought, then let that overflow into their marriage so that they can get away with the terms, get away with the contracts, and simply love as you have loved them. Help all of us in any relationship to demonstrate that kind of love which you first showed to us and help to build up our marriages around that that focus point. I ask your blessing on, on all these people in Jesus' name as we also join to pray in the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.